You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Yoshua Pupko of Beth Israel Beth Aaron, Coat St. Luke. We know where that is, somewhere near the center of Canadian. From, from your perspective, it's like near the North Pole. <laughs> somewhere up there. Well, not, not that far from uh, Vermont, right? Vermont, New We're Hampshire. right across the borders. We're, we're spinning distance. Yes. A yes, stone's yes. throw. Yes, yeah. But, but there is clearly that, that line of demarcation between yes. the Canucks and the U.S. Um, well, let's, let's, let's start today with a little bit of speculative uh, thoughts and also maybe we could maybe say a, a rabbinical hespid for someone we didn't talk about, you know, uh, who, who I think, when I think about what could have been, let's talk about Colin Powell a little bit first. I don't know if it's his shloshim yet. I think we're getting, I think it's almost his shloshim. Colin Powell, the, I, I think every single politician was scared and quaking in his boots that Colin Powell would run for office. I think that was, when was that, in 1996? I don't remember. Um, I think so. You're right, yeah. And I think Clinton realized that despite his craziness and, and, and going off script in, in many ways, but Clinton was such a consummate politician, he was scared of, of Colin Powell. Right? Colin Powell was someone who could really marshal so much because he was such a beloved figure uh, because of the Iraq war, because of uh, what happened in 1990, I think it was, when he, he said, we're going to bring our toolbox uh, you know, people forget when they when when they think about uh, how uh, much the African American community, in the United States, has been behind the eight ball, and how they didn't have positions of power. I mean, Colin Powell was arguably the most popular person in the United States in the mid nineties, right? Yes. Hey, listen, he wrote that memoir in ninety five. Everyone thought that was part of the plan to launch his candidacy, but at the last. Uh, moment he declined i mean kind of like a mario cuomo story where you know about to run and doesn't run but uh it was uh certainly there's a counter history here that you can speculate about about what would have happened had he run would, exactly you know, I, I, a black I, republican run uh for presidency against uh uh clinton it would have been interesting right clinton ran against bob dole i think instead right wasn't that yes Right now, you know Bob Dole was Bob Dole, and of course you you, you can't sell Bob Dole short. And of course, Bob Dole was a, a hero, a war hero, World War II hero. Yeah, but he was totally out of uh, uh, whack with what was going on, the sensibilities of of the late twentieth century. It was right. not hard for Bill Clinton to uh, appear young and vivacious, in contrast to Bob Dole. No, it was not difficult. Yes, yes, but but listen, Clinton was a master politician. I mean, Clinton was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant politician. No question about it. No question about and it. Got, I mean, and whatever you want to say about everything else in his life, uh, it, it, I mean, very few politicians in our lifetime have the ability to captivate an audience and inspire, uh, and convince. Uh, you know, his critics would say trick and fool, but uh, 
He uh, he was a master at it. A uh, master. Quinton will deserve his own hesp, but I agree. And especially his, his connection to Eretz Yisrael was very deep and heartfelt. Listen, uh, people forget it. When the Camp David fell apart and Arafat declined uh, the very uh, generous, some would say recklessly, generous offer from the Israelis, Clinton said explicitly, Arafat said no. He did not spread blame on both sides. Clinton well, specifically, I, explicitly, and not just once, put the blame where it belonged on Yasser Arafat. The truth is, before it even began, Clinton couldn't believe that Paris was making um, uh, connections to Arafat. He was... uh, Listen, the Americans were blindsided by Oslo. The Americans... uh, felt the Israelis had given up too much in the initial time. And, Cl- and, and Clinton couldn't believe it. Clinton w- yeah. was very connected. He is, as governor of Arkansas, he made a number of trips to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, he had a, a connection to it growing up, obviously, uh, as a religious young man, whatever his religion was. But clearly, it included that. So my, my- he's, uh, you know, his affinity for Judaism extended to Monica Lewinsky. So, uh, you know. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, it, it, well, otherwise, it's hard to understand what he actually saw in her. Obviously, it was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It must have been. It must have been that you would read the Ramban a little bit or the the Rivet Sharakdusha before uh, they would have more. By the way, I want to say something about Monica Lewinsky. I'd like to say something about Monica Lewinsky. I want to get something. Off I thought we're talking about Colin Powell, but okay, let's let's. Uh, I want to talk about Monica Lewinsky for a minute. This is a now. You know, the question everybody asks about the, you know, the Clinton scandal was, how is it possible that feminist liberal women could be supportive of Clinton when he obviously exploited uh, a young intern in the White House? Not only that, this is the classic story of power and balance, which they talk about so with such passion. You have the president of the United States, an intern, and any, how is it they let him off the hook? And feminists let him off the hook. So those people say, yeah, well, let him off the because he was a Democrat. He was uh, in favor of abortion rights. So he got a pass. He got a pass on this. I believed at the time, and I still believe today, that there was an element of, and again, I don't like using, using it, but I, I, for, just to keep conversation shorter, there's an element of anti-Semitism in that. That the, the notion of looking at Monica Lewinsky as an innocent victim was an anathema to the to many because she's this rich Jewish kid from Beverly Hills, and she therefore did not trigger the sympathy or empathy that someone else in that position would have garnered, and um, and that's the reality. It was uh, because she was Jewish. It was the idea the that the Jews the Jews are knowing social climbers and yeah, whatever. How do you ever want it? She she didn't. In other words, she, she didn't. She didn't. They didn't perceive her as lacking what they call empowerment. You know, so uh, well, there has know, been a, 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 a part of that story. Is, is, one thing is, I would say about Monica is that I think she has worked very hard to keep her dignity and privacy. I know she's done a couple of interviews, but generally she has not cashed in on it. She hasn't been uh, no. out there. And, and by the way, she was, I mean, I don't know if you're watching American Crimes. Clinton Clinton was good, was good to Israel. He was, uh, he was close with Rabin. Uh, it was clearly it, it, what was it certainly, by all appearances, a very deep and, and visceral connection, uh, both to Israel and to like Yitzhak Rabin. And uh, he certainly, uh, you know, went to great lengths to tarnish himself. But, uh, you know, uh, it, listen, he should be a lesson for Joe Biden. 
because what the way Bill Clinton ran, he ran as a centrist. He, you know, he said things of, you know, no, look, it's it's it can't happen for many reasons, and you know, this is not a this, we're not meet the press. And I'm not Tim Russert, and you're not Dan Rather. You look remarkably like uh, what's his name, Lawrence Spivak. <laughs> okay, all right, maybe, maybe <laughs> no, I no, but in all seriousness, <laughs> was the guy who right, triangulated, you know, triangulated. He right, knew but, how to do he, it. but he was he was young and able to do that. He was still vibrant, and he was also about thirty IQ points above Joe Biden. Oh, no, no, no. What I mean is, he, when I say as a model for Biden, what I really mean is a model for Democrats in that they get shellacked in Virginia. He, he wins only because he's the moderate. He wins because he's not Bernie Sanders. He wins because he's not Elizabeth Warren. And then he decides to govern like them. I mean, it's insane what he did to himself. Okay. All right. Well, look, uh, you know, I, I think that the, uh, you know, the Clinton story, although this show seemed to be about him, although I wasn't expecting that, I think that Clinton would have lost against um, Donald Trump. Colin Powell. Colin Powell, oh, 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 yes. Colin Powell would have beat Clinton. And the reason is, is because despite the fact that Clinton, you know, was able to to go to gospel churches and he was able to present himself as sort of a black person. You know, because oh, he, people called him the first black president. Yes. People called him the right. first black president. What the Clinton's chameleon-like nature to sort of like you know wherever he was, he became the he was able to put on the yarmulke and and sing Havanagi. Absolutely, he, he was able to go into the to the black. And he looked enormously sincere, right? And I still believe he was sincere. Right, right. When, when, when he was into it, he was so into being on, just like rabbis can sometimes turn themselves on and, 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 and cry and emote, and everybody can, can really connect to them. He would, have, he would have made a great show rabbi. He could, yes. have been, he could have been the emeritus rex. You never know. He, was, he could have been Arthur Schneier. Yes. Now, however, <laughs> however what, what Powell brought was an authenticity and also the idea. And he looked like an adult in the room compared to Clinton and he intellectually certainly matched him and his accomplishments spoke for themselves. He could have, and he, and he would have at least drained away 30% of the black vote, if not more, which would have doomed a democratic. And, 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 and here's what I really want to get to is that in, from my perspective, and we were both in our thirties and forties when all this was going on. So we weren't right. little kids being talked to by our teachers. Right. We were aware of what was happening. This would have been the the situation where African Americans have finally made it in a way. Now you're right; he didn't necessarily, you know, uh, push all the African American causes, but he was such an incredible symbol of of, of working hard, of, of of picking himself up from his bootstraps, of rising in power to the point. Here's what I wanted to say: where He's African-American, but he's beyond his race. The, the people who loved him, it was, it was because he was a figure that was beyond a racial figure. And, right. I, and I think that as much as people thought that's what Obama was going to be, because of Michelle and because of other things, which, you know, and people that were whispering in his ear, he turned back. And he uh, really, uh, in many ways, I believe, uh, was responsible for the identity politics, for for the fissures between black and white in many ways. Uh, whereas I don't think Colin Powell would have been that, not just because he was a Republican. I think his personality, and I think where we would have been, it, there would not have been the type of, and we know it was true, 
we know that there were haters. There were people when Obama became president, uh, hated, hated, hated him for being black. That would not have been the case with Colin Powell. And I think we would not have had the By the way, I want to tell you something. Because he was a black Republican, the, there was antagonism directed at him from others in the African-American community. I mean, let me just read you something Harry Belafonte, Harry Belafonte said about Colin Powell in an interview in 2002. In the days of slavery, there were those whose slaves lived on the plantation, and those slaves who lived in the house. You got the privilege of living in the house if you served the master, exactly the way the master intended to have you serve him. Colin Powell is committed to coming to the house of the master. That's Harry Belafonte on Colin Powell. Look, look, Harry Belafonte was a a great civil rights spokesman. He always, uh, he was was always willing uh, to push for what he felt was the injustices that were going on. I'm not going to... uh, dismiss Harry Belafonte. He is a, a serious person. Uh, but I think he doesn't realize that it's through the organic change without, you know, the bells were already rung. The fires already happened in the 60s and, and early 70s. Powell meant that we can move beyond and, 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 and make real changes. Let me take it even a step further. Assuming that Powell had become president and Clinton would have been a one- uh, a, a one-term wonder. Let's now look ahead to the year 2000. Powell, it would seem, would know how to govern. He knew how to delegate because he was a general, right? Let's even assume Islamic extremism goes on the rise again. Could you imagine? Bush sat there clueless for a while. Can you imagine if, if America was attacked and who was sitting as president? Someone who was the former Listen, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That would have been the war on terror would have been completely different. Yes, I listen. There's no question in retrospect that the uh, that attacking Afghanistan at the time, decapitating the Taliban, all of that was justified and done well. Uh, going into Iraq turned out to be a complete and total disaster. Uh, it destroyed the balance between the Shiites and the Sunnis in the Middle East. It emboldened Iran enormously to have their enemy uh, destroyed. And, uh, and we know what happens now with the, uh, you know, the Iranian arc of influence, you know, with Syria and Iraq and Lebanon and Yemen. Uh, and, and, and we know how dangerous that is. Uh, uh, I don't know why George W. Bush was so intent on going after Iraq, whether there was some kind of Oedipal thing about finishing the job his father hadn't when he pushed back the uh, Saddam Hussein after Saddam invaded Kuwait. I don't know what happened there. But there's also no question that Colin Powell got a bad rap when he testified at the UN and, uh, and talked about the, uh, the weapons of mass destruction in, uh, in the possession of Saddam Hussein that turned out not to exist. But uh, he got a bad rap for that because nobody was lying. People were mistaken. And, um, and they, they turned it into a lie. And uh, Colin Powell's reputation was certainly tarnished by the uh, invasion of Iraq. Right. But, I don't, right. Had, but had he been the president, what happened? That's what I'm saying. He was Secretary of State, which put him in a little bit of a different position. But right. as a president hearing from the Secretary of State that he would have appointed, I think he would have made a more measured. Uh, oh, but it would have been very different. He would never. I mean, that's the whole Powell doctrine. You don't go in unless you. You get in and get fast and overwhelmed. 
That was the whole, I mean, it's, it's named for him, the Powell Doctrine. But he never would have gone into Iraq, I don't think. I mean, it, let, let, let's be honest. Uh, Powell, uh, when the pressure came and he was uh, subjected to criticism for that move of, of that speech that he gave, uh, he, in later years, you remember what he said? He said uh, he, he blamed Paul Wolfowitz, remember? Yeah, sure. And, and he was right. And, 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 he, and, and, he, and he used the term, the Jinsa crowd. And of course, the Jinsa crowd is the Jewish Institute. Oh, listen, the, neo, listen, the neocons, right? And the, again, their, their, their influence was certainly exaggerated, but there's no question the neocons were intent on getting rid of Iraq. Uh, Saddam was saying, there's no question uh, of that. And the neocons, you know, even Maureen Dowd, who, you know, who has stellar uh, credentials on uh, issues of, uh, you know, big, when she chose to criticize, all she mentioned were the Jews. I mean, George Bush would have invaded Iraq with or without Douglas Fife and and Paul Wolfowitz and all the neocons that people love to talk about. You know, um, you know the uh, what they call them the the Amen Corner. You know the neocons. You know the neocons was dirty word in those days. Right, but but, and neocon meant Jewish. Yes, neocon was every used unless you wanted to go ahead and fame Jews. Right. Put it this way, it all really stems from the. the ideas of Leo Strauss from the UFC. There was his students who got into public policy. And again, they were a cadre of Jewish intellectuals who were very, very powerful at the time. Oh, but it was, but, but people forget the roots of the neocons was an abandonment of the Democratic Party because of Vietnam and the countercultural movement surrounding the anti war protests in the 60s. I mean, Norman Putt Horowitz and all those guys and Irving Crystal and later, you know, his kid Bill. And, uh, and the, the, the neocons were people who were, you know, disenchanted Democrats and or, or they were Jackson Democrats. You know, a Jackson Democrat meant, you know, Henry Jackson, late senator. It meant somebody who was tough on foreign policy, but liberal on domestic policy. That's what a neocon meant. And they also believed in the spread of democracy. I guess my point in bringing it up was that it's unfortunate that when you're in the political world long enough, the, the anti-Jewish resentment shows up, right? And they're calling him the Jinsa crowd clearly indicated that it was the group of Jews. And we know Colin Powell's connection to Judaism was quite strong, right? He 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 had an affinity. Listen, he, was the, he was the kid from the Bronx who worked in a Jewish company who knew Yiddish. Uh, you know, uh, before we got on the air, I was telling you, uh, you know, a story I, you know, I, I heard him tell once where when his bosses were meeting with competitors or suppliers and there was negotiations going on. And then his bosses would leave the room to allow their interlocutors to discuss amongst themselves. They left Colin Powell in that room, pushing broom, as he put it, so that he could spy on them because the others, the Jews, had no, could never, would, would never imagine that Colin Powell understood Yiddish. So he would be the, 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 the espionage agent yeah. speaking, you know, understanding the Yiddish and then inform his bosses on what, you know, the, the other side of the negotiations we're talking about. By the way, Nathan Lewin, who is the, the, lawyer. Uh, the lawyer, who was the, who was the child of all the Rabbanim of Jezhov. He was the child of the, uh, you know, of, of all the great rabbis of Jezhov, who was a great constitutional lawyer and an Orthodox Jew. Uh, he told a story about Thurgood Marshall, right, who he clerked for, how he goes in as a young kid, as a young clerk, to tell Thurgood Marshall after he was appointed 
uh, and tells him that, uh, you know, he has to take off the days uh, where he has to take off for a shooting of Kipper and Thurgood Marshall interrupted him. He says, yeah, I know. And then Sukkis and then Simchas Taira and then Shemini Atzeris. That's what Thurgood Marshall said to him, according to Nathan Lewin, because he too had been a Shabbos guy as a kid and he knew all the Yontifs. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I know. Simchas Taira, Shemini Atzeris. And that's, so it's not uh, an unusual phenomenon, no. And, 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 and once you are in that political world, I mean, we, we should be honest. We obviously uh, defend our own. There probably were people who, uh, among the neocon crowd, who saw the big picture as solving the, the Israel issue in the Middle East. And they probably did apply intellectual political pressure. And we, we should be honest with that. Uh, it's it still, it, no, but, but also listen, people in 2021 don't remember what it was like to be in 1991. In 1991, if you were to say, who are the three worst people in the Middle East? You said Saddam Hussein, Hafez al-Assad, and Muammar Gaddafi, right? And then because of the great turmoil, all three of them are gone. I mean, that's oversimplification, but, uh, you know, Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein are deposed, Hafez al-Assad dies, and now they're gone. And now we realize in retrospect, as horrible as they were, and Saddam Hussein was particularly reviled by Jews because of the Scud missiles he sent to Israel uh, during the first Gulf War when uh, he was being pushed out of Kuwait after invading. Uh, but all those guys were considered the worst enemies of, of, of peace, democracy, and of the state of Israel. And the fact is, you, we can look back on that time with some nostalgic feelings because at least they kept their world in order. Is Libya in better shape without Gaddafi? Is Syria in better shape without Hafez al-Assad? Without Hafez al-Assad, is Iraq in better shape without Saddam Hussein? No, they're in much worse shape. These are now all three failed states, and you, you know, and uh, and what what the neocons and many didn't understand about the aftermath of 9/11 when they, when Iraq was invaded is how much instability would be triggered by the absence of a strong hand in Iraq, as horrible as Saddam Hussein was. And as a vicious, vicious hater of Jews in the state of Israel, the fact is, you know, Iraq was a stable and in some ways predictable state. Yeah, well, it, it, it clearly, you know, players shift. I'm oh, correct yeah. that Colin would have gotten his two terms and he would have been gone through 2004. Right. Uh, you know, would we have then seen, you know, you know I, would you have seen a W? Would we have seen an Obama? You know, something tells me, you know, something, something tells me, and again, it's, it's obviously wishful thinking, wishful back thinking, that there would have been a, a unification aspect. I mean, W was, was an outsider, really. He was not a typical, he wasn't a typical, even though he was the son of the former president, he was quite different in his mentality, right? I, I think you, you, you would agree. Well, George, George, the first George Bush, George H. W. Bush, yes. did not like Jews. Did not. Oh, like of Jews. course. And George and, W. loved us, right? Which is he really sincerely loved Jews and the Jewish state, right. it, it, sincerely. It, 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 yes, and I, I and, mean, I, I know this one hundred percent. I mean, I know. No. And, and, and the Orthodox Jews that he elevated within his administration, Tevi Troy and others, and you know, it's coming up soon. He's the one who instituted the Hanukkah party, not just, oh, we're going to light a menorah, but we're going to have a Hanukkah festification that was specifically Orthodox bent. He really, he got it that Orthodox Jews represent real Jewish values 
in a historical, actual way, more than the sort of uh, humanistic, conservative Tikkun Olam approach that right. that Obama was about. No, and there's no, yeah. I mean, listen, Obama's Obama's Jewish friend, Barack Obama. Yeah. Barack Obama benefited enormously from great mazel in the economic collapse before the election, uh, from the mazel of the timing. I mean, who would have imagined him beating, you know, Hillary Clinton in the uh, in the primaries uh, the way he did? Uh, he was a remark. He also very talented, uh, very talented uh, politician, but he also benefited from America's wanting. A, I mean, I, I didn't vote for him. I voted. I vote Republican. I didn't vote for him. But even I, as you know, deeply cynical as I am, I was I was overwhelmed. I was very moved. When he was when he was elected, I thought it really said something wonderful about America. Well, you know, if we if we compare Obama to the our our, our nifter, if we compare Obama to Powell, Obama it was 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 blessed with a, a powerful intellect, with really a, a a brilliant oratory skill that Powell did not have, um, but. He, but as you know, I don't believe he had any bit of Powell's modesty and restraint. Let me just make the point. Uh, Obama, when he walked into the room, he let you know that he was the most intelligent person there. And there was an arrogance that he displayed, even when he was listening. You know, you know, this is supposed to be, we're two rabbis here. One of the greatest ideas that, I, that I've ever come across, a very simple one. It's in the very beginning of Bereshus. Beginning of Bereshus, uh, Rashi brings the Chazal that when it says, Nasa Odom B'Tzalmenu, it says, Nimlach HaKadosh Baruch Hu B'Malach And we know the word Nimlach means to take advice from, right? To get the, the ideas from, what is the term, the Shorish of that word? Melech. A Melech is someone who can appoint well and can listen to advice and is able to arrange it. That, that is really uh, what a melech is. A melech is a person who puts those advisors in place and is able to hear them, to, play, to arrange them, and to sometimes realize, I don't have it. There's someone else who can give that to me. I don't think Obama had that. I think Obama went in with his own preconceived notions of things and then push that around. I don't know if you agree, but I think that's... Uh, I, I, on character, you're 100% right. I, again, I, I, Powell loved America. Powell, Powell was a patriot. I'm not sure where Obama stood on that. I really don't. I think he, he was really, not a soldier. Look, you know, you know, despite the fact that you know, Obama kept... I don't know how many times he, 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 he said how his grandfather was in Patton's army, but the, the family that raised him was not a family that particularly cared for the United States, right? No. Um, and, uh, and what he did, the damage he did to Israel, people forget his anti-Semitism during the Iran deal where he talked about moneyed interest and the lobbies. I mean, he, he you know, he, he emboldened some really nasty anti-Semitic tropes and, uh, and what he did on his way out was just gratuitously nasty with the vote in the Security Council Refusing to veto what every American administration had vetoed till then. Put it this way: he 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 thought about things in a great intellectual way. The idea of shifting towards the Muslim world, 
it's abhorrent to us. Powell would never have thought that way. Powell was much more a student of real politic. He, uh, I don't know if he was a Kissingerite or not, but he saw things more in terms of the, the glacier, glacier-like movement of global. Okay, so here's, here's the point. Here's the real question. Here's the real question, which I don't have an answer to. When people like Ben Rhodes and everybody else, and what Ben Rhodes talked about his, you know, the choir and the media is supporting on the Iran deal. Let's just talk about the Iran deal. What was the argument from the Iran deal? Why? What compelling interest did America have for an Iran deal? So what they kept saying over and over again, which they knew was a lie. They're not stupid. They knew it was a lie. They kept saying, well, the alternative to an Iran deal is war. Why? Whoever said that? Were there troops massing on some border somewhere that weren't aware of? No. The status quo was, you know, headed in the wrong direction, you know, with the nuclear enrichment and all of that. But they kept saying that if they don't have this, there'll be war. No. So the real question is, so why did they do the deal? What compelled them to take up so much time in the second term to go ahead and make a deal with a country that Americans hate? I mean, they they hate they hate Iran. They, we, they, Americans knew they couldn't be trusted. We knew that they were violating every commitment they'd ever made. We knew that they were sponsoring terrorism across the globe, targeting Jewish interests and American interests, that they were involved with Hezbollah. They were involved in everything nasty going on. Why? What compelled Obama? What compelled Obama to do this? If you want to embolden, and also remember, you're alienating allies like Israel and Saudi Arabia, traditional allies. You're jeopardizing uh, you know, uh, so many, uh, you know, uh, historic arrangements that were made in the Middle East uh, between America and the Gulf countries and others. What motivated them? And I still don't have an answer to this question. What compelled Obama to go ahead and make a deal with the Islamic Republic of Iran to send them pallets of billions of dollars to, to relieve the sanctions and all this stuff, to ignore all the violations, uh, to accept a deal with these crazy sunset clauses, that, that rendered the deal, you know, almost irrelevant, uh, you know, within a decade. So I don't understand what motivated them. What was there in, I, I still don't understand it. What did they have to gain from this? Well, um, as you say, as I said before, Obama's hubris was was immense. I would assume that there, what he wanted to do was own up to a new reality to make Iran, to admit that Iran should be the main Arab slash type player in that region, as opposed to Saudi Arabia and the other interests. You know, I mean, Persian yeah, or Islamic. But yeah, but again, it's... Right? It, it, it would seem that there was like... Is he wanted to create a... I mean, that, that's what his defenders say. He, the vision was a Middle East where there's a balance of power. So there's more stability between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I mean, it makes no sense. I mean... I, but we you put it this way. I don't get it. The, the Iranians, uh, it, it's hard to, you know, to compare uh, who is more moral and who is more dedicated. But we know the Saudis are duplicitous as well. And the Saudis, of course, um, you know, are, are about, in many ways, you know, the, the, the enrichment of their country. That's really primarily what they're about, which, which I think people like Powell and others realized can be played to America's and the region's benefit. Yeah. We're seeing it even now. I, I don't know, but I know there is stealth 
diplomacy that goes on between Israel and Saudi Arabia. I mean, oh, for sure. you know, the, the Abraham Accords and all those deals aren't just, we know that those aren't just with Bahrain and the UAE. Those are really bridges to Saudi Arabia and, and, and the other regimes that are aligned with them. No, I, I think, yeah. which is clear. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. And the Santa Claus, of course, is for the Republicans because, yes, Virginia, it seems like the uh, sense of the Democrats ruling Washington and ruling the political landscape, there's a crack here in the armor, and it's just going to get bigger and bigger because the the, the, the people of Virginia uh, quickly uh, rejected uh, McAuliffe and elected a, a Republican and it seems like it was a slap in the face to the Obama, to Biden and every and, and his policies, right? And again, I, I'm, I'm astonished because all right, Biden may not be the Albert Einstein of politics. However, he has some smart people there in the White House. There's Warren Klain, his chief of staff. There's some smart people there. I, I can't figure out why they feel so beholden to a tiny slice of America, a tiny slice of the Democratic Party, a handful of, you know, what they call progressives, although it seems rather regressive to me, uh, you know, people like Alana Presley and, uh, uh, and and what's her name, AOC and uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. We're not talking about a large group of people. We know that the views they have on social issues are wildly unpopular in America, whether it's the, it's the critical race theory or or the, or the movement uh, around the, the transgender rights. And, and we know what a marginal, marginal number of people embrace this stuff and the economic policies that are trying to get through Congress and, and the Senate. And yet Biden, who wins the primaries, who wins election only because he's not Elizabeth Warren, because he's not Bernie Sanders, because he's a moderate, I mean, decides to go ahead and, and govern as if, you know, he, he was elected to be Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And 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 again, the Virginia is certainly a response to that. Uh you see it in the right, but, but, Jersey. You know, but but it was really the policies when they were being formulated and enacted, but when they were in, when they were enforced with sort of like a military might, the idea that which was in Virginia, which was the main issue, which was that if you complain at a school board meeting against these policies, screaming and yelling is going to get you labeled as a domestic terrorist. I mean, what terrorist. Eric Garland did with as that. As a domestic national. terrorist, yes, I was getting to that. You're right. And, and, and Mayor Garland, who was supposed to be a very um, uh, measured, reasonable, uh, respected jurist, gets up there in front of the uh, Senate committee and basically, again, you, you couldn't have asked for a worse uh, showing from someone, right? And they don't understand how much the gift they keep giving to the Republicans. And what the fellow who won in Virginia did so brilliantly was just run as a normal person and try to be, you know, be right wing, be all that stuff. Just don't be a complete idiot and lunatic like Donald Trump and you'll be fine. I mean, Donald Trump would have been reelected by a landslide, had he just changed one aspect of his behavior, had he never tweeted, had he never tweeted, he would have won in a landslide. The economy was great. Everything was fine. But he couldn't. 
this he was addicted to the drug of the praise from his hardest core uh, supporters. And he just couldn't get away from that. He couldn't get, all he had to say was, you know, the Russians may have done some bad stuff in the election. We got to check this stuff out. But he was so obsessed with people not thinking he won because of 100,000 Facebook posts that he, you know, that he was obsessed with denying the obvious. And because of that, he left himself vulnerable to that insanely corrupt investigation run by Mueller, which was based on phony depositions to get a, fi- a Pfizer warrant. I mean, the whole thing, what the Democrats did with Adam Schiff was criminal against Trump. But Trump, because of his behavior, allows Democratic criminality to be camouflaged. I mean, it was insane what Trump did. All this guy in Virginia proved is, if you're just a little normal, you can get elected and try not to be a complete idiot. Yeah, I see two places where he could have made this comeback. Obviously, the uh, pandemic would have put any leader in a difficult situation had things been fumbling in the pandemic, which they were in a way. Um, but he had two chances. One chance was, even in the first debate, was to, oh, was, was to restrain himself, was to try to be somewhat presidential, not to talk over, not to keep on uh, acting like he's a five-year-old in the, uh, in, in the you know, at recess. The second thing, I think, was even God gave him a gift. When he, when he uh, was ill with COVID, he could have turned that in his, in his favor. He could have said, I now know, I realize. He could have used that not to garner so much sympathy, but to appear sympathetic and understanding. And I think that he, he missed both of those opportunities that were given to him. Um, and of course, of course he, listen, all he had to do, he was, if he would just for a moment realize that when you're talking to the American people, you're not talking to the played employees of Trump International who are paid to nod. When you're talking to, uh, uh, you know, the American people, never forgive Trump for his lack of American patriotism. I don't, I don't believe he's a patriot. I know I sound old-fashioned, but when he's asked on multiple occasions about Putin committing uh, political assassinations in Europe, and on multiple occasions, Trump answers by saying, what, you don't think we do that also? To make a moral equivalency between the United States of America and Russia? I mean, what Republican could ever say anything near that and get elected? And yet he says this stuff and they gave him a pass. Yeah, again, listen, but you're right. Had he behaved in the first debate, he would have won. Yeah, but his, his character was obviously terrible. The question is, we were in a, a crisis situation. Stick with what we have and maybe stress those positives. The first step um, law that he signed into into law was an incredible piece of legislation. It was uh, an ability to show a connection between uh, the, the Republicans and the Democrats in a way that was compassionate, understanding, and realistic. None of those things were highlighted. He made it all about himself. And uh, Black unemployment was so low. He did so much for the African-American community. I mean, and, and his words at Charlottesville were distorted. The media was against We know all that stuff. But the crimes of your opponents do not absolve you of your own stupidity, right? And his, and his opponents were criminal. 
Adam Schiff was criminal that investigation that they did on Russian collusion, which ended up empty. MSNBC's behavior for 18 months with Rachel Maddow, claiming and drawing graphs and you know, in line, no. it was insane. It was a lie to so, go ahead and base an investigation on a, on a dossier paid for by the Clinton campaign and not to reveal that to the FISA court, to go ahead and use Carter Page when you know it's not true. And there are so many things wrong with that investigation. But Obama lets his opponents, I'm mean, sorry, Trump left his opponents off the hook by his behavior. All he had to do was speak reasonably in a, in a measured way and explain it. He would have won. Well, what we have, I guess, just to sum up here, you. We both are in agreement that Powell, had he become president, would have staved off a lot of uh, the the situation we have ourselves in now in terms of the racial divide and, right. the, and that hatred. But we're also both hopeful that the Virginia election results, which is part of the real world, might herald a putting of the needle back towards the middle in a way that could perhaps... Okay. I think it taught it taught the Democrats moderation, and it taught the Republicans how to run without Trump. So if both those things stay as an engraved lesson on both sides of, of, of the partisan divide, where Democrats moderate and Republicans move away from the insanity, uh, it's a much better political climate. But that's a very hopeful note. Yes, spoken by the true American patriot. All that uh, socialist stuff. Take care, my friends. Every day. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> right. I see the maple leaf there is 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 wrapped tightly around you. Be well, everybody. We'll check you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 